Um, I think the markets are, are certainly going to be impacted by the events that are happening in the Ukraine. But I, I think really what the markets are going to be keying in on is the health of this recovery, the health of the U.S. consumer, and, and really what's the direction of Fed policy and interest rates. Hello, I'm Consuelo Mack with a cold. On this week's WealthTrack podcast, ClearBridge Investments' Jeff Schulze assesses the longer-term economic and financial impact of Russia's war against Ukraine. In its days-long war against Ukraine, Russia has upended the political and diplomatic world order in place since World War II. What else has Vladimir Putin's naked aggression against its neighbor changed? Our guest is ClearBridge Investments strategist Jeff Schulze, who before Putin's invasion was calling 2022 a year of transition. Jeff, welcome to WealthTrack. How would you describe 2022 now? Well, I, I think coming into the year, nothing nothing's really changed as far as our view that this was a, a year of transition. Uh, we felt that the U.S. economy was transitioning from early to mid-cycle uh, financial markets were transitioning from giving you well above long-term average returns with minimal volatility to a, a much more labored move, move going forward. And, and we also felt that the virus was transitioning from being pandemic to endemic. But this, of course, is uh, going to create more volatility, um, which is is not uncommon. I, I really want to stress that because in a year of transition, if you go back to 1983, 1994, 2004, and 2015, when you have that initial removal of a accommodative monetary policy, you, you tend to see some uh, some choppiness, and the market returns tend to be less robust than what investors are tr traditionally uh, associate the market with. But in, in thinking about this event that has transpired, I just want to remind everybody that generally speaking, uh, geopolitical events tend to be short lived. And if you go back to the beginning of World War II in 1939. The median sell-off around geopolitical events has been around 5.7%, and it usually takes about three weeks to, to reach a bottom, um, but it takes another three weeks to, to, for the markets to recover back to prior levels. But if you look at the market from that bottom, three months later, uh, the markets are up 6.5% on average. 12 months later, the market's up 13% on average. And ultimately, whether the market continues to sell off or you, you see a rebound, is really contingent on the economic backdrop. You know, is the economy still in an expansion or is it heading into a recession? And I, I think a couple of events really embody this. So if you look back to the oil embargo of 1973, clearly had negative negative economic impacts for the U.S. consumer, um, spending much more of their wallet share uh, back then than we are today. And that led to one of the biggest sell-offs in the S&P 500 since World War II, as we transitioned into a very deep and a very long recession. Conversely, as we were heading into Vietnam and the, the two Gulf Wars, those occurred against a, a backdrop of uh, an economic expansion. And even though you experienced a, a pretty sharp sell-off, those were followed by longer rallies as the economy continued to move forward and earnings continued to recover. So given the fact that I think that we're still in the middle of this economic cycle, and we're really just transitioning to, you know, it's the fourth or fifth inning of this expansion. Um, I think the markets are, are certainly going to be impacted by the events that are happening in the Ukraine. But I, I think really what the markets are going to be keying in on is the health of this recovery, the health of the U.S. consumer, and, and really what's the direction of Fed policy and interest rates. What effect is this going to have on the trajectory of the Fed's policy? I don't think it's going to have a meaningful effect on, on Fed policy. And it, obviously, the Fed made a pretty hard pivot in December uh, once it fulfilled its employment mandate 
uh, with the unemployment rate now uh, at 4%, which is their estimate of long-term unemployment. And they, they turn their entire attention to inflation. Right. And even though inflation risks are skewed to the upside, I don't think they're going to deviate materially from what the market's pricing in right now for rate hikes this year. I could see the Fed doing maybe five rate hikes, 125 basis points worth of tightening instead of six rate hikes, um, but a little bit of an incrementally dovish Fed. Um, but ultimately, I don't think that uh, you're going to see a huge change in the Fed's reaction function because if this was any other cycle with inflation over 7% right now, the Fed funds rate would likely be at 200 basis points or higher. And the Fed is really just playing catch up right now. And, and more importantly, I don't think it meaningfully alters the trajectory of the economy, even if we get five or, or six rate hikes. But oil, energy prices, because of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they've obviously shot up. Um, energy prices are much higher than they were a year ago. There's no reason for them to go down anytime soon. How do you factor higher energy prices for longer uh, into your analysis? Unfortunately, we're obviously seeing triple-digit oil uh, for the first time in, in a long time since right. 2014. Um, could have an impact on consumer sentiment and, and consumer spending, but we ran an analysis, and what we found is that the percent of wallet share or percent of personal consumption expenditures, so how much money are you spending uh, as a total pie on gasoline, um, today is around 2.54%. The last time that we saw $100 a barrel of oil was back in the early part of the cycle following the global financial crisis and from 2011 to 2014, and the average wallet share spend was 3.7%. And the reason why consumers are spending less on the pump, even though you have the same price of a gallon of, of gasoline, is that incomes have gone up dramatically over the course of the last eight years. So certainly will hurt the consumer at the margin, but I think it's not really as big of an impact as many would expect. And given the fact that household net worth is up over 24%, um, from the levels that we saw in 2019 because of excess savings from the pandemic, very strong housing prices, robust financial markets. Um, I think that the consumer can weather the storm, um, even if we continue to see oil at this $100 barrel uh, mark for a prolonged period of time. But the one thing I really want to mention about the oil markets is you really haven't seen supply go offline. All of the increase of the price in oil that you've seen recently is because of a geopolitical risk that's being priced into the markets um, it, due to concerns that Putin is going to weaponize its oil and natural gas exports if there's issues with the West. Um, so I, I do think that this is probably a situation that we're going to see persist for the next couple of months or potentially the next couple of quarters until there's more visibility. Um, but ultimately, the impact on the consumer, I, I think, is going to be less than, than a lot of people fear. The Federal Reserve also has got to be concerned about the uh, volatility in the markets and liquidity in the markets. What do you think is going on at the Federal Reserve right now as far as their analysis of these events and what kind of measures they need to take? Given the strength of, that we're seeing with the Omicron reacceleration and how strong the consumer is and how strong uh, business balance sheets are and the, the strong CapEx cycle that I'm anticipating, I don't think the Fed really has to be swayed by market volatility like it has been in the past. What about investors and investor sentiment and the psychology uh, that is occurring among them 
What are you telling clients uh, at ClearBridge about the pretty sizable corrections that we've seen in the markets this week? I'm trying to remind everybody that this is part of the, the, the mid-cycle transition that you traditionally see. Yeah, as the economy matures, you, you generally have a year where the markets have some choppiness and they reset expectations for further gains as you move towards the later innings of, of an expansion. Uh, again, you saw it in 1994, you saw it in 2015. Uh, and this is, is nothing to be concerned with. Um, mm -hmm. Generally speaking, um, PE multiples um, tend to come down in this type of environment. Uh, and it's really earnings growth that, that drives all the, the forward market returns from, from this point forward for a couple of years. And believe it or not, all the year-to-date decline that we've seen has been PE multiples coming in. And estimates for earnings this year have actually risen by a couple percent. So this is just a, a normal type of situation. And we're really trying to advocate to our investors that uh, if you have some money on the sidelines to be dollar cost averaging into the market during the course of this year, because outside of barring a recession, um, which I, we see as a, a very unlikely scenario, um, given the strength of our proprietary recession risk dashboard, um, we think that there's going to be some higher highs um, as we move through the next couple of years. The economic disruption uh, in obviously in Ukraine and also obviously Russia, what is the impact that they will have on the global economy? Well, you're certainly going to see pressure in Europe and the UK. Mm -hmm. um, Europe gets around 40% of their natural gas from Russia. Um, and right. you've seen natural gas prices spike pretty dramatically here. Um, it's certainly going to affect the health of the consumer uh, in those areas. Um, but I, I, I think globally, um, you're going to see a premium put into commodities and materials. You're going to see precautionary hoarding. Um, obviously, a lot of companies are precautionarily hoarding because of supply chain issues that we've seen. Um, but I think they're going to do it even more so given the geopolitical risks that are out there as well, trying to minimize potential future supply disruptions. Um, but I, I do think that, again, from the energy complex's perspective, that we're going to continue to have elevated energy prices. Uh, but I, I, again, you haven't seen any sanctions um, come from the West at this point on energy. Um, and again, we're not clear what the implications are, whether Putin will use this and, and cut off supplies to Europe and the UK. Um, but I, I think that there's a, a pretty good case to be had that you're likely seeing the worst of these price increases in the energy complex and obviously commodities and materials as well. But I, again, I don't see a scope for a large decline until we can get a resolution in this situation. I'm speaking with Jeff Schulze, investment strategist at ClearBridge Investments. You mentioned the, the recession risk dashboard, which really has a terrific track record as far as predicting recessions and uh, you know, the 12 economic indicators. Before the invasion of the 12, 10 were green, which means that there was no sign of recession. How quickly do those indicators change in a situation like this? Well, they can change quite abruptly. Um, uh -huh. For example, the 1973 oil embargo and how aggressive that was um, had a, a huge uh, effect negatively on the growth prospects of the U.S. economy. Right. Uh, but I, I think the key in 1973 is that the dashboard um, was yellow at that point mm -hmm. and turned red immediately after the oil embargo occurred. So the, the economy was already in a precarious position and it really just needed a catalyst to push it over into a recession. And again, we're seeing a pretty dramatic oil price spike today, 
But given the low wallet share that we're seeing spent from consumers on gasoline today versus the last 50 years, um, I, I think the consumer can be able to withstand this, this increase in pricing. But more importantly, as you mentioned, Consuelo, we have 10 green, one yellow, and one red signal. And, and the overall expansion color in the dashboard is I- extremely robust, yeah. um, which you could see some um, tightening on the margin, some slowing on the margin because of this situation. Um, but given the momentum that we're going to see from reopening, um, if there ever was a time to have an oil price spike and the economy would be able to shrug it off, now would be it because of, again, the reopening that we're, we're going to see over the next couple of quarters. Right. So the recession risk uh, is very low from your uh, recession risk dashboards perspective, right? Still. Yeah. It usually takes time for it to evolve into an overall yellow or red signal, which, you know, that that evolution takes years um, to to usually to to make that transition complete. Strategy. What what are you advising uh, clients do uh, at this point? Because there's been a a flight to safety, a gold's surged, treasuries have surged. Uh, what what are you telling clients to do? Well, we, we want to make sure that uh, we advocate that again. Maintain your equity exposure. Um, right. If you if you have uh, spare cash, be able to dollar cost average into this sell off. But it, mm-hmm. I think more, more than importantly than ever, I, I think investors want to be balanced at this point uh, with their U.S. exposure. Uh, growth has been uh, an area of uh, outperformance for really over the last 12 years. And um, if you've had an overweight in growth, that's been great for your portfolio. But given the fact that this is a very different cycle, very different growth prospects, uh, you know how fast we're going through the labor supply that's out there and how fast we're normalizing. And the fact that, again, last cycle, everybody was deleveraging, whether it's consumers or banks, the austerity from the federal government. All of that is a complete opposite of what we have today, where you have arguably the best consumer or the healthiest consumer in three or four decades. Uh, uh, Corporate balance sheets are very robust, and we're anticipating a very strong CapEx cycle. Uh, The governments are no longer pursuing austerity, but they've been very um, loose with monetary and fiscal policy. I think this is a very strong environment for better economic growth and, and nominal economic growth. And when you have higher nominal economic growth, that tends to be a, a very good environment for the value complex uh, to put up better earnings numbers and to to be able to um, have a better showing than what we've seen over the last 12 years. So we've been advocating to our clients that you want to have value, you want to have growth in your portfolios. And if you've had a pretty strong overweight on the growth side of the ledger, you really want to look at value and, and maybe reposition into that in a more meaningful way because I think both value and growth are, are going to be doing well over the next couple of years. And you really want to take more of a barbell approach rather than overweighting one side or the other. And the one thing I'll mention, Consuelo, is that you know growth has had a pretty aggressive sell-off here recently, a, a pretty big derating right. as long-term interest rates have risen. Um, but I do think that as we move through the bulk of the rise of the 10-year treasury, and again, we're at 2% before the Russian invasion just a couple mm-hmm. of days ago, um, you know, I, I think growth is going to recover and, and a lot of these growth companies are, are best in class types of, types of companies generate a lot of free cash flow, um, able to move into other verticals um, and be able to take market share. So I, I really think a, a balanced portfolio is, is uh, the way to go in this type of environment, given the different nature of the, the backdrop we have. But as far as rebalancing what sectors you think this would be an opportunity to um, to put some funds in 
Well, I, I think even though we've seen a, a pretty big move for energy, um, and mm. we're likely going to see a consolidation, uh, nothing goes up in a straight line. Um, I like energy's longer term prospects um, okay. for outperformance. Um, again, I wouldn't be surprised if we have a period of give back, but you've seen uh, remarkable discipline um, from shale operators here in the U.S., um, they've stuck to conservative drilling plans, despite the huge windfalls that they've seen with revenues. They've only reinvested about 50% of their cash flows um, because there's really been a, a clamoring for from shareholders for producers to return that extra cash flow rather than reinvest it for, for future production. The returns to shareholders come from stock buybacks, correct? Correct. Given the fact that we need their production, could the emphasis be on more production, more capex spending to open the wells again and start producing in the U.S.? I, I think that's certainly a possibility. But I, what I think a lot of people forget is even if you do see some some higher production, um, free cash flow generation has been the highest on record um, since records have been being kept since 1995 in the latest quarter mm-hmm. at over $80 billion for the energy sector. Um, so although some of that money may be allocated to, to bringing on more supply, there's been a, a very prudent use of capital. And I think that continues. Uh, but even if you do start to see reinvestments because you're getting a higher rate of return, I don't think that's going to be put on as much scrutiny as what you saw back in 2014 through 16, where you know energy prices declined dramatically. But you know if you look at CapEx, I mean, there has been a dearth of CapEx uh, across the energy sector. And right. I, I think that hits a situation over the next three to five years where you're going to have a, a potential supply situation. Uh, and, you know, the, the cure for low energy prices is low energy prices because no one invests for the future. Um, same thing when you have uh, the cure for high energy prices is high energy prices because a lot of capital flows into a sector. And when that supply comes online, you have an over uh, supply situation and prices plummet, but we're coming off a situation where you've seen lower energy prices for a long period of time, and companies have not and have been very reluctant to invest in their future through through longer capex um, projects. So, even if you do see some money flow into the sector uh, to bring on more supply, the larger um, wells that can bring on a lot of supply they generally take about three to five years. So even though shale operators might move some of their money over to investing uh, to bring on a little bit more supply, I still see a situation down the road where oil is going to be a lot higher than what we're talking about today. One of the, talking about a, a balanced portfolio, one of the concerns for U.S. investors certainly has been that the U.S. markets have done so well, especially big tech and other growth companies. We're, we're way overweight uh, in what we should be um, in, in the U.S. growth sector, which is why you're saying rebalance. But I'm looking at what's going on in Europe, and I'm thinking to myself, before the invasion, I might have said, you know, we should be rebalancing and putting more money overseas. But now I'm definitely thinking twice. What is your uh, advice uh, as far as uh, investing internationally at this point? I still think that the international space is very attractive for longer term investors. It's not to say that you couldn't have continued underperformance um, until there's some visibility with Ukraine. Um, but I, I think the stars are aligning for a period of, you know, call it three to four years where international equities can outperform on a relative basis. And up until the, this invasion here recently, international equities have fared much better than the U.S. 
Um, one of the reasons why I'm, I'm optimistic on the international space is the U.S. dollar. Typically, uh, the U.S. dollar uh, weakens uh, once you get to that first rate hike. As you move towards the first rate hike, the dollar strengthens, but counterintuitively, once the first rate hike commences, uh, and this goes back over the last eight tightening cycles, the dollar will tend to weaken. And that tends to be a nice tailwind to not only the earnings potential um, for international equities and emerging markets in particular, but also it gives emerging market central banks the breathing room uh, to be able to loosen policy. And over the course of the last year, although the Fed hasn't really tightened policy until now, emerging market central banks have been tightening policy aggressively uh, because of the inflation that they're seeing. And a, a lot of that inflation was tied to their currencies depreciating against the US dollar. Um, so if you're going to see dollar weakness um, for the rest of this year, as we move past the geopolitical issues with the Ukraine, that should be a nice tailwind to not only their economies, but the earnings potential of those uh, regions and uh, their currencies as well. The other reason why I'm optimistic is valuations. Valuations after to, after the recent invasion are getting even cheaper. Mm -hmm. And although valuations are notoriously difficult from a timing perspective, um, valuations um, in, in the international space, whether you're talking about developed or emerging markets, they, they've already derated um, to a, a fairly sizable gap compared to the U.S. And I think that's going to be something that investors are, are looking for um, as we move into the middle innings of this cycle. And you you've clearly saw it in the, the value complex over the last couple of months. Um, and I think you're going to see it in the international space as well. The last thing I really want to mention here that I think is important is China. They're starting to ease in a, in a meaningful way. Back in 2009, um, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, China eased in a very meaningful way, and that really stimulated the, the rest of the global economy. And one of the key reasons why we, we had a trough coming off of the lows in 2009, um, and the rest of the world kind of got a free lunch as there's a lot of austerity in the US and, and mm -hmm. Europe. This time around, um, China really didn't do that much from a, a monetary or fiscal perspective. And it was really the rest of the world, and the US in particular, that eased meaningfully and really helped the Chinese economy. But after last year, um, the Chinese economy slowed pretty dramatically as uh, policymakers focused on uh, regulation, whether we're talking about regulation of um, tech companies, decarbonization, or trying to tamp down some of the levers that you're seeing in the housing market. Right. And at this point, the, the key viewpoint of what policymakers want to achieve this year is stability. And they're really aiming for a 5% real GDP target this year. So you're starting to see looser monetary policy. You've seen cuts of, of key interest rates over in China. You had the strongest total social financing number ever in China last month. Um, so you're starting to see the credit spigots open up. And I think even though you're likely going to see Chinese growth not be very strong over the next three months, as we get to the middle part of the year, all this stimulus is going to start to help Chinese growth prospects. And obviously the knock-on effects of countries that are dependent on that growth. And a lot of those countries are in the developed world, which is Europe, uh, but also um, in the emerging markets as well. So I think that is one of the underrated reasons why I think you really want to rethink your international and emerging market exposure at this point in the cycle. Back here at home, do you think that the Fed is going to uh, have its first interest rate hike in a while in March? I think they're on course to do that. I do. I do. Okay. I think um, just today you had a couple of um, Fed members uh, mentioned that 
given the invasion that really hasn't altered their viewpoint on monetary policy. We may not get a 50 basis point rate hike, which like a lot of people were anticipating just a month ago. But I, I certainly think that uh, it's an opportunity for them to, to raise at least a, a 25 basis point rate hike in, in March. So um, I don't think that their liftoff has, has been changed because of recent events. And final question, which we always ask at the end of every WealthTrack interview, and that is if there's one investment we should all own some of in a long-term diversified portfolio, what would your recommendation be? I think investors need to have their portfolios rebalanced if they're not already. I, I think you really need to look at your value exposure in the U.S. And if you have an underweight there, really bring it up um, because I do think that this is a, a much different cycle uh, than what we experienced back following the, the aftermath of the global financial crisis. I think international space is is ripe for um, outperformance on a, a relative basis over the next couple of years. Uh, but I, I do think in this higher growth backdrop, um, I, I do think that um, having some exposure um, to commodities and energy is warranted at this point, um, even though you've seen a, a nice run in these areas, and there's likely going to be some sort of consolidation over the next three to six months, um, because nothing moves up in a straight line. I do think as we move over the next four to, to five years, I do see more upside in these areas uh, in a more normalized global growth backdrop. And since it's a one investment question, <laughs> you've given us several investments. Um, knowing basically what American investors own or don't own, is there one investment in particular in the rebalancing uh strategy? I think you want to look at developed markets, international equities uh, at this point. Um, developed. This okay. developed markets, yeah. inter international equities. Mm -hmm. um, they've been beaten up here recently, um, underperformed by a wide margin compared to the US. Um, and I do see uh, a lot of reasons for optimism um, as we, again, hopefully move past this Ukrainian situation um, and e those economies can start to, to fire on all cylinders. Because I, I do believe that we've seen the last disruptive wave of COVID, and I think we're going to see our, our first real synchronized global growth uh, uh, backdrop uh, today than we've seen in the last two years, which generally speaking, has favored developed market equities on the international side. Developed uh, markets covers a, a, a pretty big territory. Is there a developed market in particular that looks particularly undervalued? Until the Ukraine situation um, escalating, I, I, I was pretty optimistic on Europe. I'm still optimistic on Europe, um, even though I do think that you're, you're likely going to see some volatility and some downward pressure in the near term. Um, but I think patient investors uh, can wait until the second quarter or wait a couple of months for, for, for there to be more visibility. I actually see a, a lot of upside in those equities in that particular region. Jeff Schulze, so great to have you on WealthTrack again. Thanks, especially in this very busy time as you're advising ClearBridge clients. I appreciate your spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me back. For previous interviews with Jeff Schulze, go to WealthTrack.com and please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. In the meantime, make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.